Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you finding what you're looking for on the store shelves? We talked about that Angus Reid Institute survey yesterday that showed more than 40% of people who are shopping right now for Christmas say they have had some trouble finding what they are looking for, empty shelves, whatever the case may be. So we know that factory activity really accelerated in November, but there is still that kind of bottleneck when it comes to getting those products where they need to be. So there now we also have to deal with this Omicron variant that is putting kind of a more of a damper on the markets right now. Another worry for policymakers out there. So let's talk about how industry is dealing with all this. Joining us now is Lewis Black, the CEO of Almonte Industries. Lewis, thanks for being with us this morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning. How has this impacted what you do in terms of the supply chain and all the problems out there? Well, I think uh, that um, the supply chains were, 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 were rebalancing, but rather slowly. And this Omicron obviously now has, has thrown in a spanner into the works because ultimately no one really knows how far governments are going to continue to react to something which right now no one is really seeing as, as a huge issue, if that makes any sense. So it's the unknown of what happens next. And once we understand that, then we can start to say, well, then we can anticipate what the ongoing problems are going to be in regard to supply issues. Right. How are the supply issues right now? Like, what are, what are these bottlenecks like? Well, I mean, they are combined with the shipping costs and, and availability of, of shipping. And then even today, four weeks ago in, in South Korea, for instance, um, they, couldn't, they can't get urea, which is the product they put into the diesel exhaust fluid for all diesel trucks. And so they're having to ration shipping internally. This morning I saw in the Australian news, they have exactly the same problem. So for sure, this is going to be heading uh, to, the, to the North American market as well at some point. Um, the supply issues are, are, are under significant strain right now. I mean, the supply ability capacity right. is under a huge amount of strain right now. What would you say is most impacted? Like which industries do you think are most impacted? I think it's a combination of anything coming out of Asia in terms of, of consumables, electronics, um, and there's, because they also have short shortages of raw materials. And I think you're going to start seeing produce also start to, and not all produce, but, but certainly some fresh produce is going to have trouble getting to market in a timely fashion. Um, and, and so I think you're going to start seeing as people ramp up for Christmas, uh, they've just come through Thanksgiving. I, I think you're going to keep seeing uh, some areas of empty shelves. Does this, do you think, Lewis, bring up a conversation again in areas about like food sustainability or, or perhaps manufacturing more locally rather than this just-in-time supply system that we have adopted over the last 30 years? Well, I think the, the just-in-time system, it was, you know, the way that the, essentially Western, the Western countries entrusted certain areas of their supply chain to other parties. I think bringing it back on shore that the 
although it, it sounds a, a wonderful idea, and, it, and it, in, in all the logical, practical world it is, but there's a cost associated with that. It's how much support is, is going to be levied at such an idea by governments, and how long will that support be there from governments to support such a program? You can't change the way you do things overnight. It's, it's a, a medium to long-term investment that's going to be required to start bringing more stuff in more locally. So, uh, yes, it makes a great deal of sense, but I'm just not sure that we're ready for it because ultimately, uh, you know, we like everything. We just don't want it built next to us. Right, right. But then what does that tell us about our supply chains now then? So they're being interrupted, but are they still resilient? Can they adapt? Um, I think ultimately they'll find an equilibrium. They'll, they'll find a, a balance, but I, it's going to take a lot longer than, than, than you and I would both like. So I, I think 2022 is going to be also a difficult year. I think you'll start to see 2023 a, a, a rebalancing of the supply chain as long as there's not a continued disruption because of whatever strain of COVID emerges next. Um, this is it's extraordinarily disruptive when, when they talk about these variants. But ultimately, I think we have to get back to the place where we have vaccinations. That's all we got. Now we've got to get on with things. We can't keep disrupting uh, activity um, for, for this reason any longer. Otherwise, this is never going to go away. Right. But the markets, as you said, get jittery um, just in anticipation of thinking there's going to be a problem. Uh, yes. And also markets need that, that sort of um, they, they need some you know, variation. That's how you, know, you make money. <laughs> Volatility is profit, you know, both up and down. So ultimately, a lot of this gets, you know, exaggerated for a short period of time. We've seen in the markets, we drop off, then it's coming back. So, you know, I don't think that the markets, you know, give it too much credibility from a financial perspective, because I think sales are still very strong. Demand is still very strong. The issue is getting everything on time to market. Right. And, and that's really the big problem. Okay. So then how are companies dealing with this, Lewis? So are you, are they still producing in the same way? And then where are, the, where's the inventory piling up? Well, you know, in the, in the, for the automotive industry, they're not producing because they can't get the, the, the semiconductors, for instance, or the polymers. So they have production lines that are shut down. Um, so those areas you are seeing uh, bottlenecks. But I think what, what we've seen in terms of uh, electronic consumables is that, yes, they are stockpiling uh, this inventory for when it can actually be shipped. I, I believe all the major retailers in the U.S. Have, have hired their own container vessels for the Christmas period to try and ensure that there's not that sort of disruption. So I think manufacturers are increasing their inventory levels while they look for supply um, you know, solutions. But there are certain industries that have really been hit for six, and the, and the car industry is, is the most obvious one that comes, comes to mind. Right. I was talking actually to a rental car agent about that the other day, and they were saying, we can't even replace the cars that they had sold at the beginning of the pandemic because they can't get the cars. Uh, yes, it, it's, a, it's a complete disaster. Um, and, and I think ultimately it, it's indicative of such a small, such a small element can cause chaos. A semiconductor... It's a tiny piece of the equation, yeah. but without it, the car doesn't work. And, and EVs, of course, consume, I think, seven times more semiconductors in their build and in the actual construction than, than a normal gasoline car. So we're actually exacerbating the problem with this push towards EVs. 
so it's a sort of it's a snowball effect. Um, it, they will ultimately find uh, a balancing uh, act uh, from the, the the semiconductor manufacturers, but it takes a long time mm-hmm. to increase the output of those factories. Uh, for, for semiconductors. And given all that, Lewis, and what you were seeing there, and you mentioned how some large retailers have hired their own ships, right, to get the products out. How do you think that the indus- like industries overall are doing everything they possibly can? Like, what do you think the response has been like? I, I think it's it's been I think it's been great. I think people have have, have really been doing the best that they can. I, I think the, the the word they're saying to consumers is, "Don't panic." You know, I mean, that doesn't help either. When, when, when there's a panic buying because you think that you're not going to be able to get it next week, uh, that actually also exacerbates the problem. So demand is, all, is not a, a constant. It, it sort of spikes depending on where the panic is on a certain item or certain items. But I think manufacturing, basically retailers and through the manufacturing process, everyone is doing what they can to try and find solutions um, we can't look to a government for this because it's not a domestic problem. It's a global problem. So ultimately, the market is going to have to find the solution rather than an individual or a series of governments. Interesting. Lewis, thank you so much for your time. No, no, thank you very much. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That's Lewis Black, CEO of Almonte Industries, talking about the global shipping and supply issues that we have and, and essentially what it's going to take to get things back on track. So the factories are still producing as much as they can, and yet you know, you've got that inventory that you still have to get to its destination. And that is the issue. This is Mornings with Simi. I know during this holiday season, we would like to highlight some great things that are happening out there in our communities. And in particular, this morning, we would like to talk about the drive-by food drop-off in support of the new Westminster Salvation Army. This is happening December 6th to December 11th. It's from 7 in the morning until 10 a.m. Let's find out how you can participate and what it's all about. Terry Leith joins us now, president of the Royal Canadian Legion Branch Number 2. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Timmy. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How about you? I'm excellent. Thank you. Now, I know you emailed me and I was at, somebody asked me if I could do a PSA on this. I thought, we can do better. We can have you on. Tell me about this event. Okay, this is, uh, uh, we've supported the Salvation Army Food Bank uh, before and this year they're uh, very much in need of toys for the kids and the food bank. So, our members at the branch got together and they built a big red sleigh and we're hoping to fill it with the, uh, for the food bank on, uh, the 12th, we're taking toys down there. And on the 18th, we will be pulling the sleigh from the Legion down sixth street to the Salvation Army. And we will have a police escort, a piper, some bells with lots of candy canes, and even jolly old St. Nick. I love that. Uh, we're, we're encouraging the community to donate if you can and come and see us on December 18th for some holiday cheer. Now, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the drive-by will be from Monday, December 6th to Saturday, December 11th. So on your way to work or whatever, from 7 till 10. If you drop by the Legion, we'll have the sleigh out front and the ladies will be serving coffee and hot chocolate. So nice. And so you drop by from 7 to 10, new unwrapped toys and non-perishable food, just drop it off there and I can have like a cup of hot chocolate. Yes. And uh, 
Um, the the ladies will be there to pass out the hot chocolate. I love this. Okay, so you clearly know that the community needs a lot of help this year. Have you been hearing about that, Terry? Yes, we have, and that's one of the uh, things that the, the Legion does is we support the community, the seniors, the veterans, and the youth groups. All right. Well, Terry, we're going to see if we can put the word out there and help out with that, okay? Great. Okay. Thank you very much, Simi. Thank you. Appreciate it. Anything we can do. That's Terry Leith, president of the Royal Canadian Legion Branch Number 2. So what they are doing, this is in New Westminster, they are doing a drive-by food drop-off in support of the New Westminster Salvation Army. So if you live in this area, please listen up. So this is happening from December the 6th to Saturday, December 11th, from 7 in the morning until 10 in the morning. New unwrapped toys and non-perishable food items can be dropped off at the Royal Canadian Legion Branch. This is at 631 6th Street in New Westminster. Just drive by, drop it off. They'll give you a cup of coffee, a cup of hot chocolate. Bob's your uncle. Fantastic. And you're going to be doing something wonderful for people right in your community. So we would like to do more of this. If you know of an event like that that's happening in your community, please let me know. Simi at cknw.com so we can help highlight it uh, during this time of year and get the word out there so you can help right in your neighborhood, right? And that's what we like to do. Also, We know that in the wake of all the flooding and the mudslides and the emergencies that we've had, uh, CKNW and AM730, along with our global news colleagues in BC, have also launched a campaign. It's called BC Together. So please check it out. Go to cknw.com slash Together to find ways that you can help out. Uh, And this is just any organization that is stepping up to help. It's like a one-stop place that you can go to to see the ways in which you can, you know, pitch in and do whatever it is that you can. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about that other public health emergency we have going on in our province right now, and that has to do with opioid overdose deaths. Now, we've talked a lot about overdose prevention sites in this province, and you know now they're seemingly talking about them everywhere else. But there's a new study out that shows they might actually provide some health benefits. Well, let's find out more about these potential health benefits. Dr. Mary Claire Kennedy joins us now, a postdoctoral research fellow at UBC's Department of Medicine and a research scientist at the BCCSU and was the lead author of this study. Dr. Kennedy, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So what did you look at exactly? So in 2016, a public health emergency was declared in BC in response to the dramatic increase in drug poisoning deaths in the province. And so one of the key responses that was led by the community in response to that was to open multiple overdose prevention sites. So overdose prevention sites are a type of supervised consumption site. Um, So they provide safe spaces in which people can use drugs under the supervision of trained staff, but they're different from supervised consumption services like Insight in that they're less medicalized, they're run by people who use drugs, and they have fewer barriers to access. So we already know that supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites are really effective in preventing overdose deaths, but we wanted to know if overdose prevention sites might also have other health impacts. And so we conducted this study and we interviewed 745 people who inject drugs in Vancouver between 2015 and 2018. 
And what we found is that opening overdose prevention sites led to a number of positive health outcomes. So more people began using supervised consumption sites, fewer people were sharing syringes, more people were accessing addiction treatment, and we also found that fewer people were injecting in public. Right, because the idea, I know the original idea with overdose injection sites was also a way to connect people to the healthcare system who might otherwise kind of fall through the cracks, right? That's right. So with the stigma surrounding drug use, many people who use drugs have distrust towards the health system. And while sites like Insight have many benefits, some drug users still don't feel comfortable going there because they still view it as part of the medical system. And so having people who use drugs as staff at overdose prevention sites can help to increase access by making people feel safer and more comfortable. And so this can draw people in and not only reduce the risk of immediate harms like fatal overdose, but also act as an entry point into the health system, including addiction treatment. Right. Okay. So then what do you do with these findings? You know, the drug poisoning crisis continues to have devastating impacts on communities across the country. More than 20,000 Canadians have died from toxic drug poisoning since 2016, and the crisis has only intensified since the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so our study findings build on decades of research demonstrating the effectiveness of supervised consumption sites and overdose prevention sites and really underscore the need to improve access to these services as part of the response to the drug poisoning crisis and other harms associated with illicit drug use. So overdose prevention sites aren't a standalone solution to the drug poisoning crisis, but they address a critical gap in the system of care for people who use drugs and ultimately save lives. And so we really do need to do more to uh, scale up and support access to these services. Right. So not just provide it in that one area where we seem to where we seem to provide it. That's right. So we need to do more to uh, increase access to a range of different models, including you know, services that are operated by people who use drugs, because these have um, many benefits um, that in drawing people into an environment where they can get the help that they need. I wonder as well, though, like because we have focused so much on putting these prevention sites in the downtown east side, does that mean that people who are looking for those supports then end up going there? You know, that's kind. Of, that's a, a common um, uh, misperception about these kinds of sites. You know, people often have this fear that opening these sites will have a sort of honeypot effect of attracting people who use drugs to the right. area and, and increase crime and, and public order disorder and encourage drug use, but... Ours and others' research has found that these concerns have simply failed to materialize. Most people who use drugs live within a short distance of these services, and people won't travel far to use these services. Hmm. Opening these sites hasn't led to increases in drug-related crime, and in some cases it's actually been associated with decreases in crime. And while people often believe that these services enable drug use, we're actually seeing the opposite, that opening these sites has resulted in more people participating in addiction treatment. And we've also seen that opening these sites has led to fewer people using drugs in public spaces. Right. And that's the connection part of it, right, Dr. Kennedy? Is it if, they, if they're talking to health officials, like just, just people there every day, that eventually if they feel like getting help, they know they have the access right there. They know who to ask. That's right. And I think, you know, the, the staff at overdose prevention sites, being, these services being run by people who use drugs, these, 
the staff often have firsthand experiences with the local treatment services and can provide advice and guidance to clients based on those experiences and help them to navigate the health system. So what do we do with this to help improve our opioid overdose numbers? You know, I think right now we need to do, we're in the middle of uh, a public health emergency that's been ongoing for many years with this toxic drug poisoning crisis. And so we really just need to do more to increase access to these services. We're still seeing that there are many communities in BC and other, other places across Canada that still don't have good access to these services. And this includes many rural and remote communities that are experiencing similar overdose death rates as urban centers. Um, and so, you know, really we need to do more to try to increase access to these life-saving services and, and make sure that people are safe and can be brought into an environment where they can get the supports that they need and be connected to, to the health system. All right. Dr. Kennedy, thanks for talking to us about that this morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Mary Claire Kennedy, who's a postdoctoral research fellow at UBC's Department of Medicine and a research scientist at the BCCSU, lead author of the study that took a look at the uh, overdose prevention sites that we have and the kind of health benefits they provide. And they said there are substantial health benefits. They said, you know, using these areas, using these overdose prevention sites mean that even addiction treatment participation increased by nearly 5%, meaning more people chose to get help after having that connection there. Um, Fewer people used drugs in public as a result of having them. Fewer people shared syringes as a result of having these overdose prevention sites too, which end up in more long-term health benefits too. Coming up next on the show, how are the roads looking? Not just for commuters, but I'm talking about for the truck drivers who are trying to get things moving out there. We'll talk about that next. This is Mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Let's talk about the roads out there, not just for commuters like what Kim Larson was telling us, but we are talking about for truckers who are so essential to getting goods moved around our province. We heard from Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth yesterday that we may have seen, hopefully, the last of the intense storms, these atmospheric rivers that have caused so many problems. But in the meantime, they're still asking everybody, obey the road closures, abide by fuel rationing, and travel only for essential reasons. And one of those reasons is because they need to keep the routes clear for trucks out there. So let's talk about how that looks right now. Joining us is Dave Earl, president of the BC Trucking Association. Dave, thanks for being back with us. I'm happy to be here. How have the last couple of weeks been for you? Just, you know, I mean, it's all it's just been absolutely extraordinary. Um, you know, we've got to a point now where we're starting to see a little bit of stability on the horizon, you know, and that's what I, what we mean by that to me is the last two weeks have just been chaos. I've just been, you know, trying to find a way to get something uh, anywhere where it needs to be and just make it happen. And when that happens, we lose 
so much efficiency and we lose all predictability. It just you know becomes get it there when you can get it there. We're starting to turn the corner and it's a really, really good place to be. Okay, so what's the situation like for trucking routes right now? So right now, uh, we do have Highway 1 open. I should say I haven't looked this morning. Uh, but we uh, do have Highway 3, and we do have alternate routes moving through the United States. Um, certainly what that does uh, for east-west movement is it provides us with, uh, with a degree of predictability. So while it's taking so much longer to get goods where it needs to be, it's, it's two and sometimes three times as long um, at least we know that and we can plan around that. We can start building some efficiencies. Right, because that's the thing. It's, it's planning because it seems to me there is no direct route these days. There isn't, you know, and when you look at it and you're moving around, uh, even though if it's going to take, you know, six or seven hours to do what normally would be would be three, um, at least if you know that you can plan. But over the past couple of weeks, I mean, we weren't able to have members uh, dispatch trucks to switch points until they knew that the first one was going to get to where it needed to be uh, because then you ended up with two trucks out of position. So it was really, really difficult to be able to function with with any type of accuracy. So is the backlog cleared up now? Oh, no. No, no. it's going to take a while. No, it's going to take a while. Um, I mean, the, the remarkable work that's been done by every level of government uh, you know, trying to address the infrastructure issues by the railways, uh, you know, as they re- begin to move operations by the port. Uh, it's just been absolutely amazing. Um, but this is going to take a while uh, to dig out of that. That is absolutely for sure it's going to take a while. So how would you rate um, the response to this, Dave? I know like this is an unprecedented, we always use that word, unprecedented situation. BC has really taken a blow here. But how would you rate the response and, and the, this part of the recovery? Oh, my gosh. I mean, really, from all parties, I mean, it, it's a solid nine, nine and a half. Um, I mean, Simi, I am hard-pressed uh, to really look at any way that, that we could have done things uh, better or different. There's always opportunities to learn. There's always going to be a lot of work done in, in the, the months and years to come in terms of what do we do and how do we go about it and everything else. But there has been absolutely no resistance from any level of government or agency to help. Uh, and not just, you know, nodding ahead, but, you no, know, really digging in and trying to be creative and trying to find ways. It, it's, been ex- it's been extraordinary. Right. And have you heard about how Highway 3 is? I know it's being prioritized for, truck, for, for truckers right now. What's it like, though, traversing that? Busy. Uh, and I mean, this is, of course, when we start moving out of these atmospheric rivers and now into a more traditional weather pattern. It's winter. Uh, so the ministry has repositioned a lot of snow removal equipment because they can. Uh, they're not using them on, on Highway 5. Uh, the Highway Patrol and Commercial Vehicle Safety Enforcement have really stepped up enforcement. We've had lots of conversations and steps taken. And the past few days is, again, we get past this place of trying to, to uh, you know, simply be able to operate, to, to be able to operate consistently. Uh, volumes on the highway are, are exceeding what we see in peak summer months. Yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's really busy. Now, Dave, I know truckers often feel unappreciated, right? Unsung heroes of keeping things moving around. But how are they feeling these days? Because I feel like there has been quite an outpouring of support. You know, there has been. Um, and yesterday, uh, we actually had a, uh, a group of, of cards and thank you cards uh, from a teacher from a grade 2-3 split uh, in Kelowna. Uh, it showed up in our office, and we'll be pushing it out uh, on media. Um, 
uh, through social media on our channels. So, I mean, it's extraordinary. We've got private citizens. We've got churches. We have temples. We have uh, all types of organizations stepping forward to offer whatever level of support that they can. Um, it's a tough run, and that road is, is isolated, and it's hard, and uh, there's not a lot of places you can stop once you begin. So uh, it, it's really challenging for the drivers. Well, listen, we wish you all the best. Good work. Uh, we know there's a lot of support out there. So Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Dave Earl is president of the BC Trucking Association. I think they're doing remarkable work right now. All the truckers are keeping things moving out there. So yeah, if you get a chance to salute a truck driver, absolutely, you should do that. This is Mornings with Simi. Huge challenges to repair, to essentially get back to work, get back to business. Joining us now for more on that is Lana Popham, our Provincial Agriculture Minister. Thank you so much for being back with us. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. Have you been able, I guess now, it's a little bit drier, waters have receded a little bit to get in there and get a better idea of what's happened? Yeah, I was able to spend two days on the ground uh, this week in Abbotsford, and, you know, the the water is receding in some areas. We still have a lot of water, though, in other areas, and so it's going to be a little while yet, but this weather is, is bound to help for sure. Okay, so what what kind of assistance do these farmers need right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. We had this, we had a roundtable last night with uh, Minister Bebo and myself and about 60 farmers, uh, and they were all representing their different kind of commodities. And uh, they were able to put forward what they need uh, financially to help them get back on their feet and get going again. We haven't heard a lot about immediate needs uh, currently, so I think people have, they've got housing right now, they might be bunked in with people, so that seems to be going okay. I mean, it's not, it's not perfect for sure, but it's going all right. Um, they, we want to make sure that they can get groceries and all of that, but they're uh, quite forward thinking and uh, interesting, Minister Bebo joined us, and she said that she was expecting to see a lot of sadness uh, and a lot of anger. And what she saw is what I see every day when I'm talking to these farmers. They're very strong, and they're very forward-thinking, and they were able to uh, articulate exactly what they're going to need. So they put forward from their associations the sort of the idea of the financial support that could be needed. And we're taking all that information. Over the last two weeks, we've been we've had a federal provincial working group that's working on an agri-recovery package that we'll be submitting to the federal government. So all of this information is being gathered, and uh, I think we'll be able to probably have an announcement about that in the next week or so. Were you surprised by the numbers that you were talking about yesterday? I mean, 628,000 mm-hmm. poultry dead, yeah. 420 dairy cows. I mean, that, they're, they're huge yeah. numbers. I know, it's huge, and I've really tried to not report out on those numbers as we go along, mostly because I hear from the farmers who are, you know, they're, they're the listeners or the viewers as well, that every time they hear the numbers, uh, it sets them back because it's psychologically very difficult. And so I'm really concerned about their mental health, and so I've been trying to steer away from that. But, you know, yesterday we have a pretty good number of what, what we're dealing with. Um, but I probably won't be reporting out on that for a while again. But, you know, on the other side of it, um, if you look at our laying chickens, a really good number is that 97% of them survived. 
So there that are is. also some good news stories. Out yeah, there. that is a really good number. Is there a yeah. desire, Minister Popham, for these farmers to just to get back to rebuilding as soon as possible? Oh my gosh, that's that's all they want. They want to just get cleaned up and get back to work. And so that's we, we have that in mind. You know, I did a really interesting thing yesterday. I started to have roundtables with uh, young 4-H kids because I really wanted to check in with them to see how they're feeling about the situation. They were evacuated. They had to leave behind their animals. And um, great conversations with two young people that had to leave their chickens and their duck behind. Uh, they got evacuated in a boat, and then they came back to their farm, and the, they, they had survived. They had put them up on a deck, and they had survived. And I asked them if that makes this whole ordeal, wants, uh, them, if they want to walk away from agriculture. <clears throat> and they said, even at that age, no, we love it. We just want to keep going. And so those are our future farmers who have also gone through this yeah. terrible disaster, but they're still keen and they're still dedicated and that's like right across the board it's amazing right so i know that's going to be a more long-term situation in helping these farmers rebound but you talked about something that we can do right away and that was like with the bc blueberry farmers yeah absolutely so the blueberry farmers of course they're not in fresh blueberry season right now but uh they have been struck very hard by this flood we went through um, our Blueberry Association and, and we found out that we have 7 million pounds of frozen BC blueberries in our system. So when you go to the grocery store and you look for that Buy BC logo on the blueberry packages, those are from our uh, blueberry farmers in the Fraser Valley. And so if you want to help farmers, go out and buy some BC food. Um, you know, of course, don't buy too much of it at a time. As we know, that disrupts the food system. Right. But go out and support them. Have blueberry shakes for the rest of the winter. And uh, they're delicious and nutritious. And, and that will give them confidence that <clears throat> BC consumers support them and they want them back on their feet. So there are a lot of things we can do right now. You know, uh, I just have to mention this great story I heard yesterday, Simi. Yeah, um, absolutely. This dairy was evacuated I actually have, have told part of the story before these farmers fed hay to their cows over yes. 48 hours and got them to survive. When the flood waters receded, uh, the Abbotsford rugby team showed up and helped them clean up their entire barn. And this rugby team has been going around cleaning up people's basements, moving stuff out. But the number of uh, stalls they've cleaned out in barns is extraordinary. And I just want to give them a shout out because uh, that is just unbelievable. It's just so much work. And they showed up and they just go in as a team and get it done. And I heard the hockey team is also doing the same thing. So there's going to be a lot of people that need help with cleanup. And some of that is going to be difficult to manage because it's not always safe to go into those areas that have been flooded. There's, um, you know, there's debris and there's probably dangerous substances. But there may be a point in time when you just need to give a call to a neighbor and see if they need some help just clearing out some of their damaged goods and right. that that would be really helpful. I can guarantee you that there's probably a lot of people out there who would love to pitch in and help. Absolutely. I think all you need to do is tell them where, right? Yes. <laughs> like who yes. to contact and where to go and people will show up for sure. Absolutely. People are so generous. And so one of the things that we're managing, there's so many donations coming in. We're trying to find places to 
to put this stuff. Um, it's like feed and hay, but then there's a whole bunch of other stuff. The PE has been so awesome. They've, they've reached out and said that they've got a lot of space, and so we're looking at that as a place for people to maybe bring donations to, uh, and that would be handy for people who live in the Lower Mainland as well. So as soon as we have those areas identified, we'll definitely be putting out the, the message that they're accepting. Please do come back on the show yeah. and tell us all about it. Will do. Okay, appreciate your time. Bye-bye. Lana Popham is the Provincial Agriculture Minister. I tell you, some of those stories there, very heartwarming. Shout out then to the Abbotsford rugby team that is showing up and cleaning out barns and stalls and helping farmers out there from where the floodwaters have receded. And listen, if you know of a story like that, if you know of people just pitching in and doing some work and we can give them a shout out, hey, pass it on so I can do that. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, I love that we're still learning so much about nature and its secrets. For instance, there's been the mystery for a long time about how sea lions stay underwater for so long. Stellar sea lions can hold their breath for as long as 16 minutes. Well, researchers at the University of British Columbia decided to try to find out, well, how do they do that? So joining us now is Rhea Storland, the UBC PhD candidate and marine mammal researcher. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So how did you even try to figure this out? Where did you start? Well, I mean, I started by reading published literature. So starting with the books and what we already knew. Um, And so one of the things that we already know is that when a marine mammal like a sea lion is diving and they're going underwater, their heart rates decrease. And in some species, the heart rate can get as low as two beats per minute. Uh, with our stellar sea lions, on average, you know, they're getting as low as 30 beats per minute. And so I wanted to know more about their hearts. How are their hearts helping them to achieve these low heart rates to allow them to stay underwater for so long? Okay, so how do you figure that out? Well, I decided to turn to tools that we have for studying hearts of humans and other mammals. Uh, So we decided to do some electrocardiograms, which allow us to understand how the heart is beating, how the electrical signal travels through the heart, as well as echocardiograms, which is just another way of saying an ultrasound of the heart. And that lets us actually view their, their left ventricle. We can see how thick its walls are, what its size is, and start to understand how much blood they're actually pumping with each heartbeat. Right. So did you have to like capture a sea lion and then put one of these devices on them? And then like, how does that work? Oh, that's a great question. So this would be very difficult research to do in the wild, but I was able to work with a team of people at the Vancouver Aquarium, as well as with a veterinary cardiologist. And so working with the sea lions at the aquarium, which are trained animals, we can actually have them participate in research. We were able to work with these animals. They could come to work with our veterinarian. We could anesthetize them and actually apply the electrodes and measure their ECG and look at their hearts while they were anesthetized. Okay. How long did this research take? Like, how long have you been looking into this? So I've been looking into this for my entire master's degree. Uh, So it's been... Uh, over three years now that I've been looking at the hearts of marine mammals. Um, but to, to actually do one procedure, it's, you know, about an hour long. We can, we can get the animal in and out. Wow, that's still a lot of work, though. So then what did you find, Rhea? How do they do it? 
So that's honestly still an open question. Um, one of the things that I was able to learn was about their heart health. So one aspect of my research um, was just coming up with some numbers for sea lions. So right now, um, with the data that I collected, I can say, here's what we would expect a sea lion's heart to look like, and here's how we would expect it to work electrically. And I think that's something that we kind of take for granted as people, because when we go to the doctor's office, right away they can hook you up, you can check your blood pressure, you can check your heart rate, all of these things. And we know the normal values that we would expect to see. With a species like a stellar sea lion, we just didn't have that until now. So you didn't have a baseline to work from? Exactly. Okay, so now you have that, so what do you do? So now that we have that, I mean, that's helpful for veterinarians, for any uh, animals that are in human care. But also, if anything is to happen out in the wild, maybe an animal uh, is injured or there could be uh, something that happens that affects their heart, we now have a baseline to compare to in order to say that, you know, what we're seeing in the electrocardiogram of this sea lion that's washed ashore and isn't doing well, we can then say, you know, they're their range is outside of normal and think about how to treat them. Right. But so we still don't really know though, Rhea, about like the fact that they can go like 16 minutes without taking a breath. That seems quite remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. So, so diving ability is a, a very interesting subject to me and it's where I want to go with my research. So what I was doing was looking at animals that were anesthetized but obviously, I want to look more at the hearts of them while they are swimming, while they are diving. Um, what we do know about marine mammals in general is they have what's known as a dive response. And people have it as well. We just It's not as pronounced in us. So that ability to drop their heart rate really low, what they're doing is certain organ systems, they're sort of quieting down. So they're not using as much oxygen. Um, and then any of the oxygen that they do have, they're directing it to the organs that really need it. So that's going to be their brain and their heart. And so by minimizing the way that they use oxygen while they're underwater, that's one of the ways that they're able to stay underwater for so long. Okay, that's the amazing. Way that they're... Yeah, yeah. So I, I think the dive response is super cool, which is why I, I continue to study it. Um, the other thing with marine mammals, including sea lions, is that they have more oxygen with them when they're diving than we do. So you can imagine it like us diving with a scuba tank, but that's actually where their body is just storing more oxygen than we can do. Okay, so they are clearly very well adapted to this. So these are things that their bodies just do automatically? Yeah, exactly. All right, so where do you take, what do you do with the next step of your research now, Ria? So one of the things that we've been doing is looking into parts of the anatomy that may support diving. And so uh, the first blood vessel that's leaving the heart is called the aorta. In some species of pinnipeds, so those are our seals and sea lions, that structure is enlarged. And it's been thought to almost act kind of like a second heart. You can think of it like a balloon. So when the heart beats, that balloon can kind of fill up with blood and then elastically recoil and push that blood through the system when the heart is paused. And when their heart rates are so low while they're underwater, that's something that's really necessary in order to keep that blood moving. So when I was doing this research, my goal was actually to use the ultrasound in order to see this structure, which is known as the aortic bulb. But it turned out that we didn't have the right angle. 
So I've been working with a, a team from BC Children's Hospital, and we've been using a different type of ultrasound probe. And we can finally see from a different angle and actually watch this structure as the heart beats and fills it up. And then as the structure itself, the aortic bulb, as it recoils and pushes that blood through the body. Okay, this is so cool. You're going to be very busy for a long time to come. Rhea, thank, <laughs> thank you for talking to us about it this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's Rhea Storland, who's a UBC PhD candidate and marine mammal researcher, as you can tell there. So still a bit of a mystery, though, is how is it that stellar sea lions can hold their breath for so long, as long as 16 minutes underwater? That is Rhea's research, and they have found out a little bit about it, but they still have a long way to go. That is so fascinating. Coming up next for us on the show, we know that Canada's jobs numbers for the last month just absolutely blew past expectations. More than 150,000 jobs in the last month. But where did BC stand with all of that? What about our jobs numbers? Well, we'll talk to the minister responsible coming up next.